I remember the rumbling. It felt like a freight train. And it goes on for a while, maybe 15. The tornado tore through our small town like a giant weed whacker. It was absolutely frightening. The speed at which fires were moving across the landscape was unbelievable. The faster you could run, faster you could drive. This is Design Safe Radio, where natural hazards researchers strive to make our society more resilient to everything nature throws at us. Thanks for being with us today on the 28th episode of Design Safe Radio, the show that talks about everything nature has to throw at us and how scientists are working to make our society more resilient. Today on the show, we have Benjamin Preston from the RAND Corporation, and we'll discuss his work in policy research and how decision makers could help incorporate scientific research to help make society more resilient from the local to the federal level and everywhere in between. His work focuses on how decisions that we make from land use planning to where we build infrastructure and social factors influence our exposure and impact of natural hazards. I'm your host, Dan Zayner, from the Natural Hazards Engineering Research Infrastructure Network Coordination Office at Purdue University, and this is Design Safe Radio. I want to get started by talking about how you got into your chosen field and kind of maybe some influences along the way, either from your, your childhood or your school that, that led you to, to where you are now. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's been a, it's been a long and windy road, kind of a, a non-traditional one. Um, I, I started out my career as a, an environmental scientist, as, or as, really as a biologist doing work in aquatic ecology and toxicology. And, and the motivation there, I guess I was always interested in science, um, one out of a sense of curiosity, but also because when I came out of my, when I was pursuing my undergraduate education, um, I was trying to figure out, well, what kind of degree can I get? Uh, what kind of undergraduate degree can I get and, and find a job uh, afterwards? And science seems sufficiently technical that um, I, I might have a hope of, of actually finding uh, employment uh, after, after at least my undergraduate um, education. I was misled, you know, I, it shows my naivete, <laughs> but, um, at, at the, at the time that was, that was my justification. So, so I kind of went down that road in terms of my, my undergraduate education, uh, and my, my graduate education. And, and I guess what, what I, the, the, the area that I eventually stumbled into is I really became interested in not just science, but how science gets used um, or misused in uh, decision-making processes. Um, yeah, that was particularly around um, the environment. So I was doing a lot of work sort of in, in graduate school looking at how human beings uh, affect the environment. And, and the big question or what I, what I observed from that process is looking at how um, science and new information and innovation uh, was, was being used to, to help people make better decisions about uh, environmental management and, and sustainability. So, so I always had that that interest in bridging the sort of science policy divide, if you will. I never really saw that as a as a divide, but sort of two sides of the of the same coin. Um, so uh, that eventually, that sort of interest eventually uh, led me to go to Washington D.C. And, and why did I did I make that step? Because I thought, well, I'm interested in policy. I have the science background. Where do policy decisions get made? Well, Washington D.C., of course, and 
and at the time, you know, when I was younger, uh, uh, you know, it seemed like that was a place where decisions were actually being made. Um, so I, I, I left a, a postdoc where I was doing more, you know, natural sciences work and moved to Washington, D.C. and got a job in a nonprofit organization that focused on climate policy. Um, and at the time, I knew very little about climate change or, or climate policy. Um, but uh, for me, I said, hey, look, you know, I've, I'm, a, I'm a scientist. I've been looking at how uh, human beings affect the environment, uh, understanding the risks that human beings pose to the environment. So, you know, climate change is just uh, another potential uh, example of that. Um, so I spent uh, a number of years working uh, in, a, in a sort of uh, nonprofit uh, organization called the Pew Center on Global Climate Change. It's now called the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. Um, and I became sort of the, the science advisor to that organization that was mainly focused on the pursuit of, of climate policy at the at the national level. That exposed me to the sort of the, the DC environment, exposed me to how sort of environmental policy gets made. It exposed me to how special interests influence um, decision making. Um, and it was sort of a a nice exposure to the real world in terms of how science and information is used to um, make decisions or to keep people from from making decisions. Um, what was your impression so that, was kind of a- that, uh, that time with the NGO of, of that process and how it, how it worked or didn't work? Well, it, 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 you know, I mean, when I started this, I was in my 20s, right? So I had these fanciful notions or assumptions about how policy decisions were made where, you know, scientists come and bring, you know, evidence and, and, uh, and research, uh, and, uh, expose decision makers, you know, to their findings and those decision makers go, Oh, well, that's very interesting. We should of course respond to that information. Um, so, you know, so I was quickly sort of disarmed of those, those sort of fanciful notions of decision-making and, and learned that it's, it's a much messier process. You know, science, might, science and information might be one part of a decision-making process, but it's never the only part. Um, I learned about how uh, values and, and values conflicts are very important to, to decision-making. And, you know, and just as we, as we certainly are, are sensitive to now, just, um, the, the brutality of politics, um, you know, can make it make it difficult to to move ideas forward, even even good ideas. So, it was fascinating, but you know, for someone trained just in sort of science and evidence based decision making, it's it's also kind of a frustrating, uh, someplace completely mad uh, environment to work in. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like someplace that would make me pull my hair out and want to throw things. So. I, I admire your uh, tenacity <laughs> to do that for as long as you <laughs> Well, and I think the, the important, you know, I think what it teaches you, it makes you very aware that, you know, um, not everyone in the world thinks the same way you do, right? Um, but in, in democracies, you have to find ways of, of moving the ball forward, even when you have differences of opinion, differences of values, um, and different interpretations, even of, of evidence and information. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so which means that you know, invariably, not everybody gets their way in, in policy processes. But that's kind of the nature of, of living in a democracy. So, um, if you're serious about that and, and you respect and and value democratic processes, you have to find a way to deal with that kind of the messiness of, of politics. 
Yeah, definitely. So, so you worked there for at this NGO for for a few years, and uh, then you went to Australia. <laughs> How did you end up there? Yeah, well, I mean, again, you know, DC is an interesting environment. Um, uh, to some, I guess you could say, I either either I escaped um, <laughs> or uh, or ran away uh, to Australia for for a number of years. I mean, I, it was it's actually quite serendipitous. I was. I've been doing some work on um, using risk-based methods to understand the implications of future climate change for society, and uh, I wanted a conference that I could present that work at. Um, and uh, I, I discovered this conference uh, outside Munich, Germany, um, a nice small intimate conference uh, that was focused on sort of new methods for, for assessing impacts of climate change. And I said, hmm, Munich, Germany, that sounds nice. Hmm, turns out uh, my, my sister-in-law actually uh, lived in, was living in Munich at the time and, and still does, and, and my, my wife's from Germany. So I was like, well, this sounds like a very convenient uh, type of place to kind of conference to go to. I can go to a conference, give a nice talk, meet some new people. Oh, and, you know, visit some family and and spend some time uh, in Munich, which I hadn't been to at that point in time. So nice. I went off to this conference and, and spent a week there. And uh, there were a couple of Australians there at the at the conference. And, and I gave a talk and they came up to me afterwards and said, that was really great, you know. Have you ever thought about working in Australia? And I went, No, of course not. Why would I have ever thought about working in Australia? <laughs> and they said, Well, the stuff you're doing is is really of interest to some of the things we're into and we've got these positions open. You should really you should really think about it. And so I said, Okay. And then uh my wife sort of thought, like, well, that 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 all seemed kind of kind of interesting, but we were we were we were a bit taken aback by the whole thing and thought it was kind of a, kind of silly. But about a month later, I was doing a phone interview, uh, and uh, a couple of months after that, I was I was on a plane. So, uh, you know, it just sort of right place, right time, um, and the right talk, I suppose, got me an opportunity to go to Australia. So I got a job with the CSIRO, which is Australia's kind of national R&D uh, laboratory or facility, oh, wow. uh, and I was working in... Uh, a division of marine and atmospheric research. So I was working alongside of a lot of the folks who work on uh, climate change and making projections of climate change and understanding its consequences for, for Australia and, and the world and spent uh, four years there and had a wonderful time. Actually, five years. See, look at that. Five years there and had a wonderful time. <laughs> <laughs> time flies when you're having fun. Exactly. Excellent. So what brought you back to the States after that? So you spent five years there and uh, uh, imagine you, start, you know, starting a family there and starting to have those kind of pulls back to the States or, or what kind of happened next? Yeah, well, yeah, as you mentioned, my, son, so my, 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 my daughter, my first child was born there in Australia and we were there long enough to get permanent residency and, and ultimately became, uh, got dual citizenship uh, as well. But, you know, Australia is a long way away from the rest of the world. So uh, the cost of living was one thing. Not, not many people realize just how expensive it is to to live in Australia. Um, and I'm, I'm living in Southern California, and I still think Australia is a very expensive place to live. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, exactly. And and the distance. So, um, you know, the, the time and the and expense of 
you know, flying from Australia to Europe or Australia back to the United States, it takes its toll. Um, and, you know, my wife had her family in Germany, I had my, my family back in the United States, um, start having, you know, you have kids and start paying for plane tickets for more than just yourselves. And, and we just kind of figured, you know, parents getting older, high cost of living, um, maybe it's time to to move back to the to the US. So, you know, I was a bit I was a bit sad to leave. It's it's sort of that that point in my life where you had to start making serious trade offs between, you know, opportunities in your career and, and opportunities in your family and and uh and other considerations. But uh so um we moved in uh two thousand ten uh back to the US uh where I took up a position at uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Uh, outside Knoxville, Tennessee, um, and spent uh, almost seven years there, um, both uh, doing research on the implications of climate change and extreme weather for infrastructure and the built environment, um, and thinking and work around how societies and governments manage those kinds of risks. And then um, my other hat there, I was also helping to run a interdisciplinary Research Institute of about 130 people at Oak Ridge, um, all trying to, to put various different disciplinary approaches and knowledge together for sort of more comprehensive and innovative ways of, of thinking about climate change research. Very cool. Oak Ridge is such a fascinating and diverse place, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing. I mean, I was there, you know, almost seven years, and and I think every you know every week. Um, I was there, I would meet new people and learn more about the kind of either facilities or the types of research that was going on there. And, and I, I often consider myself lucky to, to be able to work there just because I felt like I was constantly surrounded by people way smarter than me. Um, so it's, uh, so, <laughs> so the rest. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was good fun. I consider myself lucky to, and, and obviously continue to, to benefit and interact with the people, um, there who continue to do great work. Excellent. Yeah, that's that's so amazing that you're 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 able to be a part of this really important research area in a extremely elite level um, at, at Oak Ridge and, and now at the Rand Corporation. And definitely, you know, I want to say I absolutely admire your uh, your decision making process when you started to have a family. Uh, we had similar kind of considerations when my son was born. We were living up Connecticut and all of our families back in Illinois. It's like, well, what, what comes first? And uh, it sounds like you had, you had a similar kind of moment of decision there and it's, and it's ended up working out, working out for both your family and your career too, which is just really great to see. Yeah, no, it's, it's been, it's been good. I think the, um, you know, I've never, I've never had any kind of master plan for for my career um never been committed to a particular path um that i felt i had to had to stay on i i you know i think uh one's career is made up of of opportunities and opportunities come and go and um you know when you find one you like you you, you stick with it until sort of the next one you know comes along uh and and sometimes that that's that's better or more interesting or it gives you an opportunity to do something new and um, yeah, I think some people are fortunate and find opportunities that, you know, that, that satisfy them for, for decades at a time. Uh, so I'm hopeful that, you know, with my move to RAND, that's, that's the position I'm in and, um, I can settle in here for the long haul. Awesome. So, so what, 
what work are you doing now at RAND and what's the, the kind of mission that you're, uh, you're aiming towards there? Yeah, well, so RAND, you know, RAND's interesting because I came to RAND in some ways it was it was like working at a national lab, but uh, in other ways it was quite different. And and the the main difference is that you know RAND is really focused on supporting the decision making of of organizations, of people, of of governments, even 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 of the private sector, and so, um, you know, having worked, you know, I've, I've always moved back and forth between sort of doing more pure science versus doing more more policy work, and you know, I think Rand is this nice combination of you know objective, rigorous research, but done uh, very much to. With, with a client's needs in mind. Um, so we're not just doing science research for its own sake, but, you know, people and organizations come to us with problems, analysis problems, decision problems, and are looking for us to be able to provide uh, analysis, research, feedback that actually helps them with a, helps them with a decision. Um, so that's for me is just all about, you know, having impact uh, in the real world. Um, and, and RAN is a place that, uh, you know, brings so many different disciplines and expertise together under under one roof. Whether it's behavioral scientists or engineers or computer scientists, um, so it really gives you a lot of flexibility to to approach problems from a from a diversity of perspectives. Um, so 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 I joined Rand uh, to help uh, run a program. That's uh, called infrastructure resilience and environmental policy. So the scope of my work is essentially anything at RAND that focuses on um, energy, climate, environment, natural resources management, uh, and even workplace health and safety. Um, essentially, fits within um, my program. And so a lot of our work focuses uh, as focused for a number of years on uh, water and then water resources and how do we assess and provide sustainable water resources, particularly at the local level, regional level, national level. Um, we also focusing on uh, energy and thinking about how we transition energy systems um, toward you know, greener forms of energy, how do we deal with the challenges of, of decarbonization, um, and what sort of technology choices um, give us the most bang for our buck or work best under different types of contexts and, and situations. Um, and then we also do uh, work on other types of infrastructure, whether it's, it's housing or transportation. Um, and then, you know, I think the big integrator of all these different capabilities is is the sort of is the question of resilience. And how do we think about how we build resilient communities, you know, from the bottom up? So it's not just thinking about infrastructure, but also thinking about governance, thinking about you know social networks, thinking about equity. Um, and how we put all those pieces together to build, you know, resilient communities that can, you know, endure, uh, either avoid, endure, respond to challenges like climate change or earthquakes or even, you know, cybersecurity. Um, so, so RAND's really a, a great place because it allows you to move. So what I've been able to do here is move beyond just thinking about climate change in isolation to thinking about, you know, society. Uh, the environment and people and, and how, you know, a variety of sort of different opportunities and threats are, are interacting to affect the future. Very cool. Um, as you know, the, the 
center that I work for is, is really focused on the kind of fundamental science and natural hazards, especially relating to infrastructure. So that's, that's what really kind of get, gets my brain going is, uh, is how, uh, you know, scientists and, and policy researchers like yourself are looking at how, um, you know, that fundamental science can really be applied um, to making society more resilient. I'm wondering if in your, your research so far, if you've found any really great highlights that you've found where that fundamental research has been put into practice well. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think the, where I see fundamental research, well, a couple of things. So one, I think um, the sort of disaster community, the natural hazards community, um, I think one of the really critical things that sort of emerged, not just recently, and I think over, over decades, um, you know, I think speaks directly to this, this sort of concept of resilience and how do you, how you build resilience. And so the introduction of the social sciences um, into the study of extreme weather events, natural hazards, and in the, and their implications, I think has been sort of instrumental uh, and helping us uh, think in more rigorous ways about um, how we protect people, um, how we build more resilient communities, and also to think about um, to move beyond just thinking about the present to thinking about you know what's going to happen in the future and how we deal with future uncertainties and in, in making decisions um, um, today. Um, but I mean, I guess really, I think the the, the key thing that sort of drives us forward in terms of resilience and managing extreme weather events is just learning from, uh, you know, learning from what we experience uh, in terms of disasters. Uh, and, you know, I think that's, there, there are trade-offs associated with that, right? So, so on one hand, you know, whether it's the Harveys and Marias or the Irmas or Hurricane Andrews or wildfires in California, um, in some ways, uh, I think we, we struggle because on one hand, we experience these events and say, well, couldn't we have done more in advance to prepare for these types of events and recognize that, you know, at some point we're going to get hit by them and how do we make ourselves more resilient up front? Um, uh, on the other hand, I think we do a reasonable job of learning from those events when they do happen. Um, and you know that that process of learning from events um, really takes uh, you know it's, it's a really a big team effort because uh, that's where sort of applied science, applied research in terms of observing what's happening, uh, both with respect to the natural hazard, but understanding how people and infrastructure performed or responded to that natural hazard uh, is really important for sort of advancing understanding and making interventions so that the next time an event comes along, um, we're in a better position than we were the last time. I'm yeah, not sure if that really answered point. your question, but. No, that's okay. Yeah, that's, uh, that definitely hits on a lot of it um, and really get, brings up, a, I think, a critical thing that you you touched on was the integration of social science uh, and engineering and other kind of hard sciences and helping engineers and, and scientists understand that when they're doing these these research projects these um, you know things that are funded by the NSF at the fundamental level that they're impacting people and society and you know it could be their friends and neighbors that are going to benefit from this work and getting 
that in your mind as an engineer is, is really important. So I'm glad you touched on that. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, you know, I think one, one of the things that I've, I've always found interesting is, is particularly working in, in the sort of climate change domain is, is trying to understand um, how we, you know, how can we, how can we improve the way we do our science? How can we improve the way we do research um, so that it's not just engineers all working by themselves or social scientists <laughs> yeah. working by themselves, but there are these real sort of opportunities and projects for bringing those different capabilities together uh, and getting people to understand, you know, uh, just the language of another discipline, but also how other disciplines sort of do what they do um, and figure out how do you, how do you put all that knowledge together to do something new and different that really, you know, has an, has an impact. So that's something I think we, we continue to, to struggle with uh, as a society in the way we sort of organize ourselves, the way we train people, the way we construct our, our universities, we're still very much, um, you know, training people and thinking in a, in a sort of disciplinary um, way. But I think challenges like um, natural disasters, natural hazards, challenges like uh, climate change, I think really, um, you know, have, have sort of opened up people's eyes to the to the need for, you know, sort of more integrated approaches to doing science and research, and and certainly NSF has been, and and any other a number of any, uh, sorry, a number of other federal agencies have also, you know, are, are pursuing and have research programs that that really try and 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 take on that challenge and, and move things forward. But you know, I think those still tend to be exceptions. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Design Safe Radio. The show is sponsored by the National Science Foundation and NARI. You can subscribe to Design Safe Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please leave us a review so that we can improve the show. These also help others find our episodes on iTunes. Thanks for your feedback and your support. You can find out more about NARI at designsafe-ci.org, on Facebook, or on Twitter at NARI Design Safe. Next week on the show, we continue our conversation with Benjamin Preston on the impacts of decision-making on the outcomes from natural hazards. Thanks for listening.